you go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 9? I've been encouraging you to make sure that you read because um, 1 Samuel is a rather large book. It's uh, Old Testament narrative, which means that it, uh, it's hard to kind of go through every portion and every passage unless we want to spend the rest of the year studying just 1 Samuel. So there's um, times where I, where I will have to summarize some things. And today's a good example because we're going through chapters 9, 10, 11, and 12 today. So we'll let you out of here by maybe 3. But um, So there'll be some things we'll step over today, so it'll be good for you to go back and read through the text to see all of it in its context. So just again, a reminder um, that that would help in our study. Last week we saw a critical turning point in Israel's history. If you remember, for the first 400 years of Israel's existence, from the Exodus all the way up until Saul, Israel had been governed um, through the judges by God. So we see that in the um, elders and judges. So we saw that in the Exodus where you had elders assigned and um, judges. And so they sort of governed Israel all the way through their history for 400 years. But something happened last week. In spite of God proving himself faithful over and over and over to Israel through the work of these judges and through the elders, um, they decided to reject God and called for a king, and if you remember the phrase, it was so that they could be like all the other nations. And God, as he responded back to Israel's call for a king, basically said that they weren't so much rejecting Samuel, even though there was an element of that, it was ultimately a rejection of God, he said, as their king. So their rejection was actually that of God. God told them that there would be consequences for serving an earthly king. He gave them an option Well, think about this, folks. This is what it's going to be like. This king's going to take and take and take, and your sons and your daughters will have to serve him, and you'll be taxed like crazy. He'll take parts of your field. He'll take your donkeys and your servants and all that. And yet they still sort of hardened their hearts, if you will, and insisted that they would be ruled by a king. So today we're going to get the introduction to that first king. It's Saul. And again, due to the amount of the material, four chapters here, we're going to have to summarize chunks of it. So I'm going to summarize chapters 9 through 11, then we'll spend the bulk of our time looking at chapter 12, which is Saul's coronation. It's where Samuel gives his speech. So I thought that would be appropriate to spend the bulk of our time looking at Samuel's charge to Israel. I'm going to go ahead and read chapter 9, the first three verses. It says, Now there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bekorath, the son of... Aphia, the son of a Benjamite, a mighty man of valor. I thought of Dave this morning as he mentioned last night all the different names we see. and So we got a whole list of them there. He's a mighty man of valor. There you go, yeah. He had a son whose name was Saul, a choice and a handsome man. And there was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. From his shoulders on up, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to his son Saul, Now take with you one of the servants and arise, go search for the donkey. So the first thing we see here with Saul was that he was a mighty man of valor. That's more literally um, refers to somebody who's um, worth a lot of money. He was a wealthy individual. He had influence. He had power. Some of your other translations translate this as he was a prominent person, or he was a man of wealth, or an influential man, a man of standing. Those are all found in your various, various translations of the English Bible. So he was a very prominent man in his community. The fact that he had um, donkeys 
um, herds of donkeys, and servants indicates that he was rather wealthy too because the average person didn't have herds of donkeys. They might have some sheep or goats, but not donkeys. It says that he was a good-looking man. It says that he was a choice and handsome man. There was not a more handsome person in all the sons of Israel. It says that he was tall. You know, what's interesting about being tall here is that in the Old Testament, that's something that's almost always reserved for Israel's enemies. It mentions how tall their enemies were. Tall, big, strong individuals. But rarely is it mentioned of anyone in Israel. Here it mentions Saul being a head and shoulders above everyone else. So he was a tall man, he was a good-looking man, probably looked like a warrior, strong and mighty. And so the king that God had chosen for them was a lot like the kings of the other nations. He had given them exactly what they had asked for, which makes his downfall all that more striking. It makes what he does to Israel much more striking. We then find as we move off into chapter, the rest of chapter 9, 4 through verses 26, I'll just summarize this. Saul sets off on this journey. He's going to find his, his father's donkeys. When he can't find them, he's convinced by his servant to go find what he refers to as the man of God, which is Samuel. And he has to be convinced to do that by his servant. We find in verse 16, it says this, About this time tomorrow I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people. So what we find is that as Saul is out wandering around, he can't find the donkeys. So his servant says, let's go find the man of God who can tell us where these donkeys are. He can see. He's a seer, a prophet. And so Saul, when, he agree, or when Saul agrees to do that, God reveals to Samuel that he will be meeting Saul shortly. This is what he says of him. He says, about this time tomorrow I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people, or king, another way to say that, and he will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have regarded my people because their cry has come to me. I I love that verse because we see that even though in the chapter before, God says, Samuel, they're rejecting me. He reminds them of all the things that God had done, and yet they're still rejecting me. And yet what do we find in this one verse, almost like a little side note? God says, I'm going to send them their king to deliver them from their enemies, for I have regarded my people. He's still calling them his people. He's still saying, I've got regard for them. He's still listening to them, it says, because their cry has come to me. We've talked throughout this book so far that one of the themes that we see throughout this book is is God's loyalty, God's faithfulness to an unfaithful people. Now, he'll judge them, He'll oppress them, he'll chastise them, but he absolutely never abandons them. And this is a great example of that here. And again, it's almost like a little side note that the author puts in here. And what we find in the rest of this chapter 9 is that Saul holds, or Samuel holds a feast. He brings in um, uh, Kish and his family and ultimately anoints Saul as the next king. But it's a private ceremony. It's not something that all of Israel sees. And so what we find in chapter 9 here is the selection of Saul, the identification of Saul as the next king, and his anointing. And Saul kind of all takes this in stride. We see that he's rather humble. He's rather quiet about it. Um, And we'll see. We'll we'll touch base on that in, in our conclusion today. So Samuel actually anoints Saul privately as the first king over Israel. I want to read verse 1 of chapter 10. It says, Then Samuel took the flask of oil, poured it on his head, kissed him, and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be ruler over his 
inheritance. Jump down into verses 5 through 7. He says, Afterwards you will come to the hill of God where the Philistine garrison is, and it shall be as soon as you have come there to the city that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, and they will be prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you mightily, and you shall prophesy with them and be char- or changed into another man. It shall be when these signs come to you for you, your- for you to do yourself what the occasion requires, for God is with you. Look at verse 9. He says, Then it happened when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God changed his heart, and these signs came about on that day. When they came to the hill, hill there, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God came upon him mightily, so that he prophesied among them. It came about when all who knew him previously saw that he prophesied now with the prophets, that the people said to one another, What has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? A man there said, Now who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. So it's a private anointing ceremony. Samuel does a number of things. He tells Saul, There's going to be some things that are going to happen to you now as you head back home that are going to prove to you what I've just said. One of those is that he meets two men from his home region who tell him that the donkeys have been found. That's what Samuel told him. You're going to see these men. He's going to tell you where the donkeys are. That's evidence that God is at work. He's also told that there'll be these men that'll find him along the way at Bethel. And they'll make offerings. That's exactly what he came across. And then lastly, he told, told Saul that the Holy Spirit would come upon him and he would begin to prophesy like the rest of the prophets. And all three of these things came true as a way of God demonstrating to Saul, you're the one that I've anointed. And so we see all of that here. We see something else in this text here too. It says that God had changed his heart. It says he'd be changed into another man. That's rather... Startling as well when you see what happens a little bit later where the Saul or the Spirit of the Lord departs from Saul. So what we find here is Samuel publicly anoints or announces Saul as king um, as we move into the bottom half of the text here. So it goes from this real private ceremony to this more public announcement as you get into chapter 10. Why don't you jump down to verse 17. We're just going to read uh, 17 through 19. Therefore Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the sons of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought Israel up from Egypt, and I delivered you to the, um, from the hand of the Egyptians, and from the power of the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But you have today rejected God who delivers you from all your calamities and your distresses. Yet you have said, No, but set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your clans. So what we see here as we move into chapter 10 is we go from this private anointing ceremony to this public announcement to Israel that Saul would be their next king. But you notice he sort of delivers that with a bit of chastisement. God kind of reminds them of what they've done. I've been your king. I've delivered you. And yet you've rejected me. Well, here's the king that you've asked for. Immediately after that, we find that Saul has his first military victory against the Philistines. And I believe that the reason that happens so quickly here is because it's God's way of solidifying him as their king. Um, We even see that with David when he became king. He has a military victory shortly thereafter. But it might also be in fulfillment of what God said when he told Samuel 
you're going to anoint this man, I'm going to use him to deliver you all of Israel from the Philistines. And that's the very first thing that we find here with Samuel as we get into chapter 11. I'll let you read that on your own, but it's verses 1 through 13, where we find that this Amorite king, Nasha, or Nahasa, actually prepares to attack a place called Jabesh Gilead. It's a small town east of the Jordan. Um, it's in the tribe of Manasseh. They cry out for help from the tribes to the west of the Jordan, specifically right around Saul's home. So Saul raises up an army. What's remarkable about this is he raises up an army of 130,000 men. And they go off and they defeat the Philistines. And so God validates Saul as the king that would save them from their enemies. And he does exactly that. So as we make our way through chapter 9 through chapter 10 and on into chapter 11, we find that we we have um, God selecting this young, humble man from a fairly wealthy family. He happens to be a good-looking, strong individual. He's head and shoulders above everybody else. He's a great military guy. It's exactly what you would look for to fight your battles. Anoints him privately. Um, goes off and announces to Israel exactly um, what God has done. Promises to deliver them from the Philistines. Reminds them in a rebuke that they have rejected him. And that this king will now serve over them. And then he validates Saul's victor, Saul's kingship by taking him into battle and defeating his enemies. So where does that leave us? Well, we're going to spend the bulk of our time now kind of looking at the coronation if you look at uh, chapter 11, Samuel gives a speech to Israel. And there's a number of things that he actually does. The speech falls into three parts, if you will, and we'll look at each one of those parts. The first one happens in chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. Let me go ahead and read that to you. Then Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have listened to your voice and all that you have said to me, and I have appointed a king over you. Now there, or now here is the king walking before you, but I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. And I have walked before you from my youth, even to this day. Here I am, bear witness against me before the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? I will restore it to you. Then he said, you have not defrauded us, or I'm sorry, they said to him, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. He said to them, the Lord is witness against you and is anointed is witness this day that you have found nothing in my hand. And they said, he's witness. So what do we find here? Well, first off, Samuel reminds him that he had served them and been faithful to them ever since he was a youth. He had served them as a judge for over 40 years. Started as a young boy. Here he is 40 years later. They've rejected him. Even though the Lord a few chapters earlier said, well, they're not really rejecting you, they're rejecting me. He's still God's mouthpiece. He's still God's judge. And they were rejecting Samuel's leadership. In stark contrast to former judges and priests of his day, he had been faithful to the Lord and conducted himself according to the law. If you look at verses 3 through 5 there, he kind of you know he went through the litany of things that he had done, like not taking a bribe and... That was in stark contrast to many of the priests of his day. In fact, even his own sons were told were taking bribes. So in some ways, this speech that he gives here serves as a rebuke of Israel's leader, um, leaders. In, spe- in spite of Samuel's godly, um, faithful leadership, Israel um, had rejected him and rejected God. The priests were a mess, and they demanded to see a king. 
that would rule over them. So, this first part of his speech really serves as a rebuke. That they had rejected this faithful, godly leader in Samuel. And instead wanted a king who was just like every other nation. The second thing that Samuel does is he asserts himself as their judge by reminding them that um, just some of the things that God had done, that they had rejected those things as well. So, let's look at that. If you look at um, chapter 12 and verses 6 through 12. Is that right? Yeah. Then Samuel said to the people, verse 6, It is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and who brought your fathers up from the lands of Egypt. So now take your stand that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord which he did for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and your fathers cried out to the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and settled them in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, so he sold them into the land of Sisera, captain of the army of Hazor, and into the land of the Philistines, and into the hand of king of Moab. And they fought against them. They cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. But now deliver us from the hands of, your enemy, of our enemies, and we will serve you. Then the Lord sent Jerubbabel and Baden and Jephthah and Samuel, and delivered you from the hands of your enemies all around, so that you lived in security. Well, let's look at verse 12 as the last one. When you saw that Nahash, the king of the sons of Ammon, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall rule over us although the Lord your God was your king. So what does he do in the second part of his speech to them? He mentions four righteous acts that God had performed on their behalf. The first one was that he rescued them out of Egypt from their enemies. The second group would be the four other acts, or three other acts. He sent Jeroboam, Baden, Jephthah, and Samuel as judges to them. Those were righteous acts of God. He did that to deliver them from the Canaanite enemies that they faced. So what he actually does here in this small part of the speech is he simply reminds them of how good God has been to them, the righteous things that God has done in delivering them from all of their enemies. So he basically says, you've rejected me as your faithful leader, and then you're ignoring what God has done in calling for a king. You've ignored all the righteous acts that God has done throughout your entire history to protect you from your enemies. And the reason that's significant is because immediately then in verse 12 he says, but now now you see this king on your borders and you're all freaked out and you call for a king to rescue you. In spite of the fact that for 400 years God always took care of your enemies. So he reminds them of these righteous acts of God to remind them you've forgotten what God has done for you and now you're calling for a king. So in spite of those righteous acts, they reject God and demand a king. What's the third thing that Samuel does here? He actually admonishes and encourages Israel. And I, and I love this because um, there's actually a great lesson in this for us as parents. Um, he actually goes on to admonish and then encourage Israel. An admonishment is to sort of give a warning, to challenge people to do the right thing. And then there's encouragement. So we're going to break this part down. Let's look at the admonishment. If you look at verses 13 through 15, as they had demanded, the Lord gave them a king, but it came with a warning and an act of God's 
sovereignty and authority. If you look at what happens in verse 13, 13, 14, and 15 here. Let me pull that up. He says, Now therefore, here is the king whom you have chosen, whom you have asked for, and behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and listen to his voice and not rebel against the command of the Lord, then both you and also the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. If you will not listen to the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the command of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you, as it was against your fathers. So he first gives them this warning. He says, if you fear the Lord and serve him and you listen to his voice, and you don't rebel against the command that God has given you, then both you and the king who rules over you will follow the Lord. So he gives them this warning. And he gives them the other side of it. He says, if you don't listen, if you fail to listen, but you rebel against the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you, just as it was against your fathers. So he lays it down for them. Okay? You've asked for a king, but the rules still apply. Don't rebel against the Lord. Follow him. Listen to him. The king and Israel will be fine. But if you don't, then look back at your history, just like your fathers did. You don't follow the Lord, you rebel against him, then the Lord's hand is going to be against you. There we see that principle again, that God opposes those who oppose him. So, he gives them this warning. To follow that up, so that they know that God is serious, God demonstrates his power and authority here. Look at verses 16 through 19. He says, even now, take your stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not the wheat harvest today? In other words, he's saying, take a look at this field. About ready to reap reap the harvest, right? It's been a good few months, you've been watching it grow, great little harvest out there. But then God does something. Is it not the wheat harvest today? I will call to the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. Then you will know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord by asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called to the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. He goes on in verse 19, he says, Then all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, so that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil by asking for, your, for ourselves a king. Basically what God did was he destroyed the field. Wiped out their harvest. With such a, such a powerful thunderstorm that Israel thought at that moment they were going to die. Can you imagine that? Perfectly clear day out. Things are going good, you know. You're listening to Samuel and it's probably going in one ear and out the other ear. So God makes his point, completely destroys their harvest, and does it again with such power and authority in this massive storm that they're afraid for their lives. So they beg Samuel, pray to God that he doesn't kill us now in the storm. Then God made his point, and at least leads them to some degree to repent, to confess. Now, we know it's going to be short-lived, but isn't that the history of Israel? Over and over and over again through the book of Judges, We see Israel finally repent when God oppresses them. And it's a short-lived repentance before, as the Bible says, the dog returns to its vomit. But at least he gets their attention here. At least they realize, oops, we made a mistake in asking for a king. They recognize their sinfulness. So in this this third part of his, his speech here, he's giving them this warning so that they don't forget 
in some respects, you know, it's sort of like as parents when we're, you know, we, we know, we, we discipline our kids, and do we really think that they'll never do it again? But we still do it, right? You still put the effort and the energy in, because you know over the long term, and that's what God is doing with Israel here. What I love about this section here is that he doesn't end with just this warning. You better get it right. You know, pay attention to what happened to your fathers before you. This could happen to you too, the big storm. Instead, he ends on a note of encouragement. He ends on a note of encouragement. He says, in spite of their sinful demand, there was still hope for God's blessing and favor. We've already seen a glimmer of that where um, God says that he heard the cry of his people. And so even in, they hadn't repented yet. Even in the midst of them crying for a king in their hard hearts, God still sends them a king that's going to deliver them from their enemies. So we've already seen this glimmer, if you will, of God's goodness and favor to them. But listen to the encouragement, verses 20 through 25. It starts off in verses 20 and 21. It says this, Samuel said to the people, Do not fear. You have committed all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. You must not turn aside, for then you would go after futile things which cannot profit or deliver because they are futile. So he's going to basically focus on four things, saying that this hope that they have in God is anchored in four things. And the first thing it's anchored in is their faithfulness. He basically is going to tell them, look, if you're just faithful, God will be faithful. That's the first anchor. The second anchor was God's faithfulness to them. Look at verse 22. It says, For the Lord will not abandon His people on account of His great name, because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for Himself. What a great statement. You know, there you are, Israel. Can you imagine being in that, in that, that generation where you've realized, like I said, we've got some, some minor repentance here. They're standing there. They're seeing God's destruction and probably some genuine repentance there in terms of how they feel. And now they might be wondering, what happens going forward here? Does God still love us? Is God going to reject us? And yet Samuel's encouragement to them is, remain faithful, and if you do, God will remain faithful to you because of His great name. Now what's remarkable about that is we find, we, we know the story from the outside looking in that God even remains faithful to Israel when they're not faithful to Him. But the difference is, He's faithful to the nation of Israel. But there are generations that get judged. But God doesn't reject Israel because of one generation. So, when you think about it from the big picture, God remains faithful to Israel because of His great name, it says. Because He was pleased to make them His people. And that's why even today, God is faithful to Israel. You know, we find within evangelical circles today this abandonment of Israel, um, this replacement theology that the church has replaced Israel, God is done with Israel. And yet we saw in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 that God is not done with Israel, that we don't have salvation without Israel because we are grafted in to Israel. We are grafted into God's plan. God is still faithful faithful to Israel. Um, Dustin sent me this email the other day, which is rather timely. is a a statement that was made by um, Andy Stanley um, about how we have to... What was the phrase he used there? Um, It's the idea of disengaging from the Old Testament. You know, unanchoring ourselves from the Old Testament. Unhinging ourselves was the phrase used from the Old Testament. Now, 
he doesn't believe that the Old Testament is, is bad or wrong. I'm not saying that at all. But he's saying that for some, they get hung up on the Old Testament, so we shouldn't make a big deal out of the Old Testament. Because that can be a stumbling block for some. Now, he preaches from the Old Testament. So again, we've got to be careful because he's not saying abandon the Old Testament altogether. He's just sort of, it's not maybe not as critical or as important. And a lot of churches will focus primarily on New Testament. Okay? Because that's where the gospel is, right? What's interesting is, the very day before I asked my wife to order a book for Father's Day for me, that's all about the importance of the Old Testament because it's messianic. And it was written specifically because of what's happening in the evangelical churches today, where, eh, we don't spend much time in the Old Testament because the Old Testament really isn't messianic. Oh, there are some prophecies. No, the whole entire Old Testament is about God's redemptive plan. It is a messianic book. It is all about Jesus Christ. And we see that even through this. We see God laying these... David, as we get to, the, as we get to David, the king, he is a type, an example of the coming Messiah. So as we look at David and him having the heart after God's own heart, and we look at his, just the way, the way that he lived, and, and his, you know, he sinned, obviously. But overall, David is a type of Christ to represent him, and foreshadows the coming Christ. And so, God is still faithful to Israel, and we see that here with Samuel reminding these Israelites, okay, you may have blown it in asking for a king, but there's still hope. Just remain faithful to him. Remain faithful to him. And the king and Israel will experience his blessings. God will not abandon his people. The third point that he makes is that he's going to be faithful to them. Samuel himself. Can you imagine this? Samuel gets rejected after 40 years of amazing service. And yet, look at what Samuel says in verse 23. He says, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. But I will instruct you in the good and right way. He's at the end of his life. He's getting old. To be real frank, if it were me, I'd probably be a little tired of Israel at this point. This is, I served you for 40 years, and now you're going to complain and you want a king and you're offering me lip service. You know, Well, it's just because you're getting old, Samuel. He can still do his job. And yet Samuel's attitude, we've seen twice already Samuel weep or... Um, actually, one of them comes. I'm sorry, comes out. Comes in the future here, where um, when God rejects Saul, He weeps over Saul. We've seen one instance before this where He's distraught over their calling for a king. That's who Samuel was, and so here He just reminds them that He's going to pray for them, and He's still going to instruct them in the right way. So even though they've been hard-hearted, even though they've been rebellious, even though they want a king like everybody else, Samuel's going to hang in there and be faithful to them. And it's because, as he makes really clear here, it's because of his relationship with the Lord. Because he says, I'm not going to sin against you, but I'm not going to sin against the Lord. So he anchors his service to Israel, not in how they respond but in his relationship with the Lord. That's what made him a good judge. In the same way, it should be for us, right? When we serve one another, it should be because we are anchored in our faith in Christ, not because of what we get or how people behave. But how often do we struggle with that? You know, another individual isn't nice to us or doesn't treat us properly or doesn't respond when we do the nice things or 
do we oftentimes sort of feel like, well, I am so done. Or we respond with the same attitude back. You know, I, I've shared my struggles even with work um, and how difficult that is sometimes um, with management and other things. And, and, you know, I vent to, to Dustin oftentimes about that. Um, and the Lord is trying to teach me, I think, you know what? No, that's not why we treat people a certain way or serve people in a certain way. We do it because we're anchored in Christ. It's because of our relationship with Christ, which means even when we don't get back proper responses or don't get treated appropriately by other people, especially those we're trying to minister to. Um, there was this couple that Amy and I, they were a part of my uh, church back down in Grove City, and um, they were just a mess. Just kind of a mess where they had these issues all the time, and just they'd come and they'd talk to us, or I'd talk to the husband quite a bit, and just encourage them, look, if you guys just start acting like a decent husband and wife, you know? But they just, they would just constantly reject the counsel that they were receiving. But you know what? Every time they'd come back and ask, all right, we do it all again, you know, do it all again. Could have said, you know, this is a waste of my time. You know? I told you what to do. I shouldn't have to tell you what to do. Again, and again, and again, and then again, but you know what? My pastor told me one time, he's like, you know what, I'll meet with anybody as long as they're willing to meet. Because some of the people that he met with, like me, he sent off to seminary, you would say, and I, I don't say this privately, but that's, you would think that's, okay, this is a decent investment. The time paid off, you know? Um, because he, he spent his time and energy with me, radically changed my life. I went off to seminary. I, I get the privilege and the honor of teaching and, and whatnot. But then there's others that he met with that didn't even seem to grow. He would just come in, sit, take up his time. Next week they're back, same issues, same stuff, no growth. And I asked him about that one time, and he's like, you know what, it's not up to me. If they come in, they're willing, then I'll give them my time. I'll just keep doing it. Even though maybe the payoff wasn't there. Why? Because Christ expected it. He saw it as his role. He served faithfully in spite of maybe what or how others responded. And that's exactly what Samuel does here. So he encourages Israel. I'm not going anywhere quite yet. I'm still going to teach you in the way you ought to go. I'm still going to pray for you. Because to not do so would be a sin against the Lord. The last and the fourth thing was that they were to remember the, four, or remember the great things that God had done for them. Look at verse 24. He says, Only fear the Lord and serve Him in truth with all your heart. But then he says this, For consider what great things He has done for you. So what he does here is he anchors Israel's hope. If you're to have any hope as Israel, these four things are going to be critical. One of them is that you have to remain faithful to the Lord. That's up to you. But another anchor is that the Lord is faithful to you, and you need to remember that. That the Lord is faithful to you. He was pleased to make you His people. The third anchor, he says, was, I'm going to be faithful to you. So I'm still going to be here to teach. Now, he's not going to be around much longer, but he said, I'm going to still, as long as I have breath, teach you in the right way. I'm still going to pray for you. The last anchor was simply remembering the great things that the Lord has done. This one, I think, is critical. He says, only fear the Lord and serve Him in truth with all your heart, for consider what great things He has done for you. We've shared this before, that 
James, in the very first chapter, as he teaches us about going through trials, uses a very specific word for knowing. He says, when, you're, when you go through these trials, you should know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And the reason that word know is so important is because it's an experiential word. What he's basically saying is, because you know, through your experience, that God uses trials to build endurance in your life, when you go through the next trial... Remember that. Because as you go through that trial, if you remember what God has done previously, it'll help you get through that trial. And then when you remember it the next time, He gets you through the next one. And then when you remember the next time... And so part of the anchor of hope for Israel is thinking back, what has God done in the past? Let's remember all the things God has done. And in doing so, maybe that would help them to remain faithful. Do you think it ever motivates us? You know, when we think about what God does for us, does it ever encourage you through difficult times? Does it ever encourage you when you're facing issues? Does it ever encourage you as you think right now, all right, 2,000 years, Jesus hasn't come back yet. But he's always been faithful in the past. He's always done exactly what he said. So it becomes an anchor of hope. And so as Samuel finishes up what apparently is his last speech to Israel. He not only admonishes them, but he gives them some hope. And that hope is critical at this point because they had just done a very drastic thing that will radically change Israel from here on out. In fact, as we go through, at some point we'll go through First and Second Kings and Chronicles where you see what, what these kings do. They've got, they've got more wicked kings than they do righteous kings. But boy, when they get a righteous king... Israel thrives. When they get an unrighteous king, Israel faces just devastation. And so they've just done this critical thing. It's called wickedness, more than once in this text, of rejecting God's kingship over them and choosing a human king instead. You know what I find um, challenging about that? You guys have heard me say this before. This borderlines on my, my opinion, which makes it difficult sometimes, but... I really struggled today with our American churches in some respects because in some respects many of our churches are built off of what I want to call cult leadership, meaning that the pastor is the church. Um, we see that with um, in, 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 many, in many areas of Christianity today where it's my pastor says, my pastor says, my pastor says, my pastor says. And we believe what our pastor says rather than what the Bible says. Now hopefully you've got a pastor that preaches and teaches the word, right? But it's interesting how Christianity is built off of popularity of its preachers and teachers. We put so much faith in them sometimes. And and you, you hear sometimes where churches are completely destroyed when their pastor commits sin. That makes you wonder. If it's the, we understand that because the sheep in some respects scatter when that happens. But why is it a church, if it's healthy, can completely collapse because one individual does something. Makes you kind of wonder about the health of that. And I know the damage that a pastor can do. So I'm not saying that that's not important, but sometimes we place a lot of our faith in the human leaders instead of ultimately in God. You know, um, I actually appreciate when when um, 
people question things that I teach and ask about it and want to know, is that really what the Bible says? Because I, I, it helps me to, to sit back and double check and think and wonder, you know, and what I'm teaching really biblical. I don't want anybody to follow me. What I want is for people to follow Jesus Christ. My hope and prayer is that if we leave here this morning and I disappear, that this is a church. Not, well, it's all about Mike. And so Israel did this critical thing, and it's called wickedness because they wanted a human leader to follow instead of God to follow. And so with that in mind, Samuel then encourages them that even though they made a huge mistake, it wasn't so big that God would abandon them. God was still there to serve as their God. He would work with their kings, and even in the midst of all this, they demanded a king like all the other kings. God will give them that, the first one. But then he responds with David, a king after his own heart. All just reflects on who God is. There's three things I want to point out, three things here that I think stand out in our passage today, and just in summary. The one, and it's one we overlooked. This is where I want to encourage you, like I said in the beginning, to go back and read. It's the humbleness of Saul. One thing we see that we didn't cover today is that when, when Saul is chosen, he is this humble, humble individual. There's a number of things that happen. He listens to the counsel of his servant. In other words, um, his servant says, let's go see Samuel. And Saul actually capitulates and, and goes. He goes and listens to, he listens to his, his servant. He allows his servant to sort of direct some of that. It says he's humble. It says he's surprised. When Samuel actually reveals God's plan for him as king, Saul is surprised by it. Me? He's from a prominent family, and yet he was humbled by the fact that he had been chosen for this. Um, when his uncle asks him when he returns after being anointed, um, or after Samuel does his thing with him, um, his uncle asks him, well, what did Samuel reveal to you? And basically, he tells him about the donkeys, but he doesn't mention anything about being king. Very humble about it. Could have come back and said, guess what? I'm the king. I'm the king. But he doesn't. He doesn't mention that at all to his uncle. That was pretty significant. He basically says, oh, he told me where the donkeys were. That was it. Um, after his first military victory, this is chapter 11, um, the Israelites want to actually kill all the worthless men. They're called worthless men that were opposed Saul as king. There was this group that just hated the fact that Saul was king. And so Israel says, fine. He just gave us this huge military victory. Now you get your payback. Israel demanded that Saul kill all the worthless men. Saul doesn't. He basically just, no. Nope. Doesn't want to do it. He could have, but he didn't. We're going to see it a little bit later, the way he chases down David, wants to kill David. But at this point, he's actually very humble. Um, all of that's going to stand in contrast. So I would encourage you to read through the chunk that we did here and really look at how Paul or Saul is because there's going to be this stark contrast in who he becomes. And it's because of his relationship or lack of the Lord. So that's the, one of the first things that stands out in this passage is how, how humble Saul is and ultimately where he's going to go. Second thing that stands out is the grace with which both God and Samuel extend to Israel in spite of their wickedness. Both God and Samuel are rejected by, God, or by Israel, yet they both extend grace. We saw that in our passage today. God gave them a king who delivered them from their enemies, even though... He could have let their enemies just take over him. You reject me? Fine. Hands off. You don't want a king to help you against your enemies? Let's see what happens when I take my hands off the wheel. But instead, he gives them a king who is a good military guy and actually destroys their enemies. So not only did God extend grace, but Samuel did. Remember Samuel's, you know, I'm not going to sin. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to still teach you. I'm going to warn you. I'm going to admonish you. Isn't that what we see in the gospel? Even though we sin, God continues to extend grace 
and mercy to us over and over and over? When do you think that's going to run out? How many of you are near the limit? No? Nobody? It's because God is gracious and he's kind. And so we see that in our passage today as well. And we see that through the whole entire book. The last thing I want to point out, the final element is what we see reflected in both God and Samuel. One of the things that Samuel shared with Israel was that God would not abandon his people for his namesake and that he was pleased to make them his own. So God's covenant loyalty stands out here. In fact, this passage drips with the hesed of God, which is that covenant loyalty. He made him his people. He's got a closed, clenched fist with Israel and he is not going to let them go. He will remain faithful. He will fulfill his promises to them. Samuel also shows his tremendous loyalty by assuring them that he would continue. And so we see this final element where this this faithfulness that gets extended to Israel by Samuel and by God. Isn't that really the anchor to our salvation too? When you think about it? One of the last things that Paul does in Romans 8 after he gets done laying out the gospel for us, before he moves into his discussion with Israel, one of the last things he does... It's the end of his dissertation. It's the conclusion to his thesis about the gospel. At the end of chapter 8, as he says, nothing can separate us. And he goes through this litany of things, right? Height, depth, nothing can separate Why do you think Paul ends on that note? Because it's critical. God didn't just save us and walk away. God saved us and keeps us. And he is the one who maintains our salvation. It doesn't mean we, have, we don't have to be faithful. But the reason we believe that when God saves us, that's a permanent thing, is because God saves us permanently. He remains faithful to us. So that's the essence of the gospel. So we see, when, we, when I briefly mentioned before about the Old Testament being messianic, one of the things God is teaching us throughout the whole entire Old Testament about his faithfulness to Israel, one of the reasons why he is so faithful to Israel in spite of the constant rejection and abuse that he faces is because when he gets to us, the New Testament, he wants us to know, I'm faithful to you. Kimberly and I have been going through the first chapter of Ephesians and we were talking this week about how it's God's kindness, the kind intention of his will that leads us to repentance. And so God is faithful and constantly, constantly loyal to us because he wants us to see his kindness because that leads us to repentance. And so our faith is anchored in a principle we find in the Old Testament, God's loyalty. And so everything we see here with God doing with Israel, we see reflected in the gospel and God's relationship with us. The New Testament tells us that the Old is a test, or is a tutor to lead us to Christ. It tells us what to expect. So when we sin today, should we fear God's going to abandon us? No, but what should we do? Remember, he's a God who's loyal, a God who's faithful, and that kindness should lead us then to repentance, which then changes our behavior, causes us to love him more because he loved us first, right? 